Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here, and in association with my good friends at Preaching Today and Food for the Hungry, I bring you a podcast that hopefully gets helps you get better at the craft of teaching and preaching while always ensuring that your character leads the way. Well, today um, I'm really excited because we get the chance to um, interview a pastor who wrote a phenomenal book called Good Baggage. Uh, his wife, Sharon Hottie Miller, has been on the podcast before, but Ike Miller has a PhD. He's been co-lead pastor of Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina. Um, they just turned five. Um, I, I have um, heard from so many people about the goodness of this man. Um, people talk about his leadership. They talk about his pastoral abilities, his preaching. Um, and then I got good baggage sent to me and I started flipping through it. And I was like, where was this book 20 years ago? Um, I just think that there's so much for us as pastors um, to dive in and learn from. And so without further ado, I get to welcome my friend, Ike Miller. Thanks so much for joining us on the Craft and Character Podcast, my friend. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for having me, man. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And really, you know, pastors and, and talking to pastors is my sweet spot. I mean, even with this book, it was it was originally going to be a book around leadership and, and in pastoral context in particular. And uh, and so I'm, I'm stoked to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive in there, because I think like, you know, I'm always curious how an idea um, whether it's a sermon, you know, you, you almost have that, that moment of like Holy Spirit inspiration. And oftentimes for many of us, we're always having to discern, is this a tweet? Is this like an Instagram post? Is this a sermon? Is this a, a chapter? Is this a sermon series? Is this a book idea? Talk about how this concept of good baggage, and I, I really even just want to just even uh, say the the subtitle because it's how your difficult childhood prepared you for healthy relationships, which I think is fantastic of a, an amazing subtitle. But talk about when did you know, like, oh, this, this is a book. Yeah. Yeah. I'll narrate a little bit of my story and, and kind of lead up to this. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in a home where my father had an alcohol use disorder or what we know more generally as alcoholism. And that led to my parents' divorce. It led to uh, certain kinds of abuse. And so that was kind of the context I grew up in very briefly. Fast forward to the pandemic and uh, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot, but kind of getting to where this book idea came from. I mean, you know, everyone who was in a position of leadership during the pandemic had what I think somebody coined decision fatigue, where you were just constantly making decisions, right? And it was also this impossible situation where regardless of what decision you made, someone was going to be upset with you. <laughs> someone yes. was not going to like that decision. And uh, during that season, we were about a year and a half old as a church. So I'm already asking the question, like, are we going to survive this? You know, are all our people going to go to a church that has a nice polished online service? We don't have, we have an online service, but it's Facebook Live in my living room. At least it was initially. And so there's already some anxiety around all of that. And so I'm beginning to feel in this season, a little bit of kind of a recurrence of some depression and some anxiety and as this went on, I eventually went and met with my psychiatrist to talk through like, what do we need to do? And they gave me some as needed uh, anxiety medication. And my story as it goes along is 
the further we got into the pandemic and the more of these decisions I was making where somebody was upset with me, it was just starting to wear on me emotionally and reaching just a point of exhaustion. And I reached a point where I was taking my medication, this as-needed medication, more and more. And at some point during this, I remember um, me and Sharon's counselor saying, I feel like you're on the verge of some addictive tendencies here. And it was just this moment where, first of all, my instinct was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm good. I've got this under control. But then you have the moment where you're like, okay, in this moment, who's thinking clearer, me or my counselor? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I took some time off at that point and just needed to get some rest to find a rhythm of life that was more manageable uh, to kind of step back. And in that, I went back to looking at some of the impact of my childhood and I was reading a book on codependency. And I remember I was on a walk. I was listening to this book. And the author said this line where she said, in codependency, we use our words and actions to manage others' reactions and emotions. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's what I've been doing the last six months. And I've just taken the codependency of my childhood and transferred it into my church and am codependent with my whole church now. And so that was really the moment kind of the scales fell off the eye of my eyes. I saw, man, there are so many ways in which my childhood is sabotaging my leadership, sabotaging my ability, sabotaging my character even, right? Because I'm on the verge of a, a moral failure if, if this really does become a full-blown addiction. And so that's kind of where this began was having a lot of conversations, kind of those tweets, like you said, where you're you're posting an idea and you're like, man, here's one of the ways that my childhood, being the child of an alcoholic, was affecting my leadership. And as I shared that and hearing other pastors identify with that, and man, that's so true, or I didn't have an alcoholic father, but that this is how my childhood impacted me, and it seems to be a similar kind of dynamic. And so I was kind of hearing a lot of that, but the moment where I realized maybe there's a book here is when I had this realization of there's so many ways that my childhood is sabotaging my leadership, sabotaging my relationships, and yet... I also think that there's some things that my childhood put in me that are actually I, I can use for the good of my leadership now and the good of my relationships now. And so just kind of let me give you one example and then we'll jump in a little further. But one of those examples was one of the things that caused me immense anxiety was on Sunday morning, walking into a church or, you know, zooming in during the pandemic with some folks and I just had this instinct to read people's emotions, read their faces, their body language. And I would try to read their minds as a result of that and try to sense, okay, are they upset with me? Are they uh, angry with me? You know, and you would see that, that there was some emotion on their face, but the negative step that I took, that I took from my childhood was I assumed I'm responsible for that. And so now I need to fix it. Right. And that's exhausting. But if I can step back from taking responsibility from that, and walk into a room and read body language and read emotion and discern something's going on here, that becomes a powerful tool that I can now use for empathy or to engage with somebody that's come into my office for counseling. I can use that to help draw them out. Or and with my wife, you know, I come home at the end of the day and I can tell something's going on. I can use that tool for the good of my relationships. So that was kind of the moment where I think there's more here. Yeah, I think it's so good. You know, I... um you know, people have heard me talk about this before, but I, 
you know, I grew up, my parents weren't believers. Um, my dad was like a just angry, um, business person, you know? Um, and I could tell by the way he walked to pick me up if I could talk to him in the car ride home, mm-hmm. just by the way, just the, the pace of his walk. And yeah. I, and I've often said like, Oh my goodness. Like that actually trained me to read a room. Yeah. absolutely. You know I mean? Like yeah. I could, I can walk into any room and for the most part, like in a leadership setting, in a church setting, in a new setting, like I can, I can read like, Oh, we're at like 68 degrees or yeah. man, this is like, 78 and something's about to happen right now, you know, you know, but I think that's enough. I think that what you touched on, which I was really, really impressed by in your writing, sometimes when people look back, they have so much almost shame. Mm -hmm. And I felt like you looked at it from a healthy sense of like, oh yeah, this is what got me here. In some ways it was like survival to survive. It just wasn't going to allow me to pastor and father and husband and befriend well moving forward. But even just the turn of the idea that, hey, baggage, and I'm going to put the word good in front of it. Yeah. Talk about that because I think for so many of us, we look at our past and there's, oh, like, why is this there? Like, oh, like why? It's like, it's almost like this irritating. And I think when we look at it that way, for so many pastors, we actually don't want to actually address it. Right. It gives us permission just to, just to stuff it. And I think you turned that like almost around and was like, Hey, there's something good here. If you can have the curiosity and courage to face it, talk about that. Yeah. You know, in some ways I kind of feel like it wasn't a, a choice so much as the result of a refining process. Uh, you know, the best analogy I know of is, um, Several years ago, I went to the dentist and I get to the dentist and they they do an x-ray and they're like, there's something going on with that tooth in the front. And uh, they're like, you really need to go to an endodontist and get that checked out, see what's going on. And so I'm like, well, okay, you know, if it starts to bother me, then I'll go deal with it, you know. And a pa- year passes, I go back to the dentist. They're like, did you ever get that checked out? And I was like, no. And they're like, you really need to get that checked out. Like one Saturday morning at 2 a.m., you're going to wake up and that thing is going to be an awful pain and you're going to, you're not going to be able to get help right away and all that. I was like, okay, sure. You know, no joke that Saturday morning, I wake up at 2 a.m. with this like awful grueling pain in my face, you know, and long story short, the the tooth had kind of died and an, um, a, an infection was developing in there. And so they had to go in, they had to clean it out. They had to do a root canal. And the, the reason I say that is that is very similar for a lot of us to the impact of our childhoods where we know it's there, but we're kind of like, I'll, I'll deal with it when it starts to like bother me, when it starts to show up, when it starts to cause problems. And what happens is because we wait until it starts to cause problems, it actually ends up feeling like it's too late. Like it's already blowing up in our life. Kind of like my tooth was blowing up in my face, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of it was me realizing if I don't start to deal with this stuff now, then it's going to blow up my marriage. It's going to blow up my relationship with my kids. And that's the thing with shame. And I even said this to somebody in my office this morning, that the the problem with shame is that shame uh, multiplies shame. 
that in our desire to avoid dealing with shame and the things in our life that have caused shame, it leads us to do things that actually cause more shame. So for me, one of the things that I had to get really honest with sharing about was the greatest pain when I was dealing with kind of misusing my medication was not even people's frustrations at church or with my decisions. It was the fact that I was at home with my kids all day long, you know, Sharon and I were splitting the days, but I was with them for hours at a time and I was at my wits end and I could not be the father that I wanted to be because I just, I got so upset. I would get angry. I would get, and so in my shame, my inability to acknowledge, I'm not the father that I want to be. And I can't ask Sharon to help me. I was doing something that was only going to lead to greater shame. And so to be able to say, okay, let's address these things so that they don't exacerbate the shame that we've already experienced. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, and I think it's, it's, um, it's sometimes tricky to almost play it out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and really go like, oh man, if I, if I don't get a hold on this, where this can be in three months or nine months or 15 months, you know? And that's like where the character side comes in, you know? And I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of really, really good, sincere pastors who struggle with codependency, who in many ways are like, you know, in AA terminology are, you know, dry drunks. They're, they're not like, they're, they've almost like shifted that addiction towards workaholism or, you know, something that they can manage and still like show up and go to work with. As you think about that, like, how did you like play that out? Like, you, you know, if I imagine there's pastors, you know, we're coming to the end of the year and they're like, oh man, this has been a run for these last three years. This has just been an exhausting run. How did you like call timeout? Yeah. You, were you like, you seeing a counselor? Did you start seeing it? Like, what, what did that look like for you? Yeah. You know, so there's a couple, a couple of pieces to that. One is, uh, you know, some of the good baggage that I talk about in the book is that growing up in the context I did, seeing my parents' uh, marriage and then their divorce, I didn't know what a healthy relationship looked like. I just knew I didn't want my relationship to look like that. Yep. Yep. Totally. <laughs> so what that did for me is it gave me this inherent passion or desire to do whatever was necessary to see my marriage go differently. Yeah. And one of the ways that that played out early on is within the first year of me and Sharon's marriage, we started seeing a counselor on a regular basis. And it wasn't because we had major issues, but it was because we didn't want major issues. And the gift of that is during this season, that was already in place. And so I never had to ask the question, when is this bad enough that I need to go see a counselor? That was already a part of our rhythm. So I would say whether that's a counselor or a mentor or just someone in your life, that it's already a part of the rhythm so that you don't have to ask, when do I talk to somebody about it? So that was a big part of it was having that in my life already. The other thing that I realized was I was terrified of hitting my limits as a pastor. And I was always trying to anticipate where are my limits so that I can get ahead of them before they get in my way. And what I did not realize is I was already hitting my limits. I was already at my limits and I was using my medication to cope with the inability to uh, deal with hitting my limits. 
And so I had to step back and accept the truth that I can either keep trying to push at this pace and eventually either drive myself into the ground, develop a full-on addiction, whatever it may be, or, and this is kind of like you said, the character piece, I can step back and say, okay, wisdom would say it's better to slow down. It's better to find a pace that I can live with without medicating unnecessarily. I think there is a place for medication. Don't hear me wrong, but uh, misusing my medication and then being able to be here for the long term. And so one of the tools that I've used that has really been tremendously helpful is as a pastor, you are constantly faced with these pressures to say yes to a person, to a request, to a favor. And in that moment, it feels like the request is, or the the tension that we are in is, well, do I say yes to this person or do I say no and then be upset with me? And what I realized is that pressure to say yes to them always had another cost. And I need to be able to name that cost. And a lot of times the pressure to say yes to that, the cost was my mental health, my emotional health, my relationship with my kids, my wife. And to be able to say, okay, in this moment, is it worth that? Because if I constantly say no to my mental health, eventually I'm going to have to say no to every request because I'm not even going to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so being able to acknowledge what are the real things that are at stake here, not just I say yes and they're happy with me or I say no and they're not happy with me. Yeah. I, let me, can I just push on this a little bit? Because I think yeah, this, is, this is a really good conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, and when I was, you know, 44, and when I was, you know, in the the throes of um, a succession um, process years ago, um, I I had like this this sense, and I think it started out when I took my first job at a church in Grand Rapids, and I saw it when I was in Costa Mesa at a great church out there, and I experienced it in Chicago at the church that I was in the succession process with was. Once you got to a certain level, you had control over and power over your schedule. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I think I watched various pastors push through that emotional well-being, mental well-being, soul well-being, because there was this carrot that dangled. I get to the church to like 2,500. I could get my summers off for like a teaching, a study break. And if I get my church at this, like I can then hire up other people. And if I get through, we blitz through it. You're in your like year and a half of mm-hmm. the church. And you've been at different churches. You've studied at, you know, Duke and some of the most prestigious institutions. You've seen and you've been in rooms did you feel this like osmosis, like in your subconscious, like, dude, like we're supposed to push through. And once I can get the church to a certain size, then I can call sabbatical. You know, right. does that right. make yeah, sense? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I think, and I don't know how much this is attributed to just sheer 
fortitude and will. But I think what I realized in that season of being a year and a half old as a church is that is a gamble. When you play that game, it is a gamble. And you may get through that 2,500 to whatever it may be size church, but you might also crash and burn on your way to that. And the fallout and the cost of that is going to be tremendous. And I think because I'd seen enough of the like, oh man, we got to, as a church plant, we got to 200. Oh man, we got to 500. We got to a thousand. And yet every time you got through that, it wasn't on the other side, what you thought it was going to be. That is where the wisdom piece comes in, where you've got to say, okay, if for everybody else, they've gotten through this and they've gotten there and it was not what they thought, why is it going to be any different for me? Why is it all of a sudden going to be satisfying and fulfilling for me if it wasn't for everybody else? And so being able to acknowledge what the gamble is and to say this, and this is what I tell our team now all the time is I say, in this moment, there can be a pressure to do this event perfectly, to do this thing perfectly. And you may do that for four or five events or four or five years and then you're just going to burn out and exhaust it. And you did events for four or five years that were amazing. But I said, what I really want for you is I would rather you do this event, do it well. It's not perfect. You did it well. But your mental and emotional and soul health be intact at the end of it. How did you switch your culture from that? Because, you know, like I think in a lot of us, we grew up in scenarios and situations that was like, you know, excellence at all costs, you know, and oftentimes that cost was to our emotional, yeah. our physical, like even our calendar, you know, we're breaking through boundaries and Sabbaths. Mm-hmm. How, in, how did you get that and instill that into, you know, a junior high yeah. leader to go, wait, are you saying that? Yeah. Or do you really yeah. mean that? How, right. how did you, how did you model that and embody that? It's kind of a funny, like, opposite of what was intended kind of thing where I, it was before we planted, I was interviewing at a church and the pastor was talking about how, you know, we work 60, 70 hours a week because our people, they work 60, 70 hours a week. And so they need to see that we're working just as hard as they are, you know, and it was kind of this point of pride. And I remember thinking like, which is it? Are they working 60, 70 hours a week because they're, are, are you working 60, 70 hours a week because they are, or are they working 60, 70 hours a week because you are, because they're following your example. And, and so as I begin to think about our own staff, I think that there's been this mentality in church cultures that says, okay, we're going to ring out our staff for the health of our church to put on the best events, to drive the biggest community, whatever it may be. And I just don't think that works. I think an unhealthy staff leads to an unhealthy community. And so to reverse that and say, the only way that our community and our people are going to be healthy is if they're shepherded by people who are healthy. And so it's kind of been that process of, I realize this is counterintuitive and countercultural in some ways, but I want this staff to be made up of people that enjoy being with me, that I enjoy being with, that we're doing life together in a way that's that's feeding and life-giving to their soul. And then as a result of that, that our people would live in ways that are life-giving. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, a work against kind of culture in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's, I mean, that's when people can actually begin to, to 
feel that and know that, believe that. I mean, the freedom that will come from it is just incredible. Um, you know, what's amazing about good baggage is I, you, you can read through it and you go like, man, this is, this, this is a leadership book in, in its own way. And yet it's also like an amazing, like congregational read because we all have baggage. You know, like you, you, the fact that like to be human and to be around broken and beautiful people, you're going to pick up baggage along the way. Have you ever done this as like a sermon series? Yeah. You know, so as we were kind of heading into the fall of this year, we did do a four week series on the book. And it's kind of funny. There's, there's a certain structure to the book, kind of the setup, the good baggage. What are we even talking about? And then there's kind of some things that are obstacles to healthy relationships and then getting into, okay, what is the good baggage? And then how do we leverage it? And so as we're walking through this series, um, the first couple of weeks we're going to be about good bag, like the baggage itself. And then how, you know, our, it's sabotaging our relationships. And Sharon looks at me and she goes, you know, the book is called Good Baggage, but it feels like we're stuck on all the bad stuff. <laughs> so we had to revise that a little bit, but we did. We spent four weeks in a series on the book. That's awesome. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes because I think that will be, I'll find that because I think that'll be an amazing opportunity. I always love when I, I read a book that I go, gosh, like pastors, you have to read this. I think this is so important. But then also you recognize like, gosh, this is so transferable to a beginning of the year sermon series, you know, as people are like processing through. And and yeah, I read this book, it's called Upside. And it was all talking about the upside that can come from post-traumatic stress disorder. Like oftentimes we see it as this, but like, Hey, there's an upside. And I, I felt like this was in that same vein is that I began to recognize like, again, wow, here are the things that I learned from this. Here are the unhealthy pieces that have a chance to derail me. I got to work on that, but here are some pieces that, wow, like, and I use the word leverage that can be leveraged for either further empathy, further connection, further healing. Um, I'm 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 curious though, as you started to to talk about this, what were some of the things that you heard in the congregation? Yeah, you know, it, obviously the big fear is like, is this being too vulnerable? And yeah. what will people do with this information? And will people think, well, if the pastor doesn't have it together, how's he going to help me get it together? You know, and just all of those fears around that. And I even had early as I was talking about this, I had sort of a, a mentor of sorts say, I struggle sometimes with how vulnerable you are in your preaching. And I think some of that is generational. Like I, I think that, that there is this sense of the preacher is there to put on display for people. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus and experience the benefit and blessing of that. And there's absolutely a place for that. But the shadow side of that is there isn't a space for vulnerability. There isn't a space to be like transparent and and talk through things that you've struggled with. But I felt like with this conversation in particular, a lot of my credibility with this conversation depended on my ability and my willingness to get into the depth of my pain yeah. so that yeah. they could say, okay, he's not just speaking on high 
about this. He's speaking from having been in the pain of this, having seen it really lead to some wreckage in his own life, and then how he came out of this. And that's somebody I can trust in this conversation. Um, And so it was certainly hard, uh, but I think because of the culture that we've also been working to create in our our church, it didn't create whiplash for our people. They weren't like, oh my goodness, this is all of a sudden out of nowhere. Um, We do have a lot of people in our community who are honestly coming out of AA. And uh, that was not something by design. It's not something, you know, it just happened. And what I love about AA is everybody who's there knows why they're there. We're not here putting on a good face. It's not like, hey, I got it all together. I'm just here to see what you guys are doing. It's like, I'm here because I am an alcoholic. And we wanted to create a church where people said, I'm here because I've got stuff. I'm not here to put on a face. This is the, the church is in quote, a hospital. I'm here to find healing. And that starts with me sharing. How did I find it? Yeah. What what were some verses for you that like just encouraged you along the way? I mean, again, in your book, you, there's, there's so much richness, richness of the text of what you, you just see like your heart for the word and um, your heart for the life in the kingdom and the life with Jesus. But talk about that. Like, were there a couple of like verses for you that, um, because oftentimes what I'll tell uh, people who are walking through these seasons is, man, you need some anchors. And sometimes the text could be that. I felt that as I was reading uh, through, were there a couple of verses for you that, that stick out? Yeah, there were so many. Um, and really, and there's a lot of stories that also stuck out to me. Yeah. One of the stories I talk a lot about is the story of David and Goliath. And in particular, the, <laughs> the part of the story that really doesn't get a ton of attention, but that just grabbed my attention was the part where David puts on Saul's armor. And he puts on this armor and he realizes that it doesn't fit him. He's not used to it. We're pretty sure some of that's because it was just too big. I mean, Saul was a big guy. And so it just didn't fit him. And David takes off the armor. And if you put yourself in this situation, you think here's young David who is getting ready to go to fight a giant. And he's essentially saying to all of these warriors around him, like, hey, I know you guys wear armor when you go into battle, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Kind of like, who am I to tell you how to fight battles, right? But he takes it off and he goes and he he defeats Goliath. And in in hindsight, being able to say, man, so much of my work in ministry has been putting on this image that I think others want me to be, whether that's how, you know, the best preachers are preaching or how they're tweeting or how they're, you know, writing or all these things. This is the image I've got to put on. And thinking like, this is going to protect me. This is going to give me an image that's going to make people like me. And all the while, it is crushing me. It is exhausting. It is overwhelming. And so I'm going to finally accept that this is not who God created me to be. Who did God create me to be as a pastor? And let me take off this armor that I think is protecting me, but that's really become a prison. Yeah. And lean into that because that's where I'm going to have my impact as a pastor on my people. It's not when I can be whoever out there is preaching and try to be the example of that here, but to say, God called Ike Miller to be the pastor of Bright City Church in all of my strengths and my weaknesses. And so how does God want to use those to serve this people versus kind of putting on some armor that's actually doesn't fit me? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's so good. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's so good. And you know, I think about that too with that story is that line that David says where he, and I'm going to butcher like the exact, but he just said like, um, when the bears came to try and take the sheep, like when the lions came, you know, um, he he goes back to when nobody was watching except God, mm-hmm. like. And, and he's like, this is how I took care of it. And this is how God fought with me and protected me and protected the sheep. And, you know, sometimes I think like going through, like for me, it's, it's Monday mornings at 11 a.m. is my counseling appointment every Monday, 11 a.m. It's what mm-hmm. I do on the regular. Um, nobody sees that, right? Nobody sees th- those battles. Nobody sees the stuff that you were, you know, you and Sharon praying through. Nobody sees... Right. And, and I think what's amazing is what we often see is like, oh, what you tweeted or what you, what you preached or, you know, even in masquerading in somebody else's like armor, but it's like, oh my goodness, like that piece of that decision to start going to counseling years and years ago, you know what I mean? Like, and just like prepared you to be able to see, like, I don't want to wear this armor anymore, you know? And it's like, I think there's something just in that story, like you said with David, that yeah, it just it it hits, um, it just hits different. Um, you know, in some ways, you you said this just a few moments ago. Um, it might be a generational thing, mm-hmm. and you know, I I started to think through. I'm like, you know, you, you know, Bright City Church has this ability. I feel like to to preach to people who are 40 years older than you and 30 years younger than you all. You know, but I started thinking about like, okay if you could like almost speak to your 20 year old self or to the 20 year olds who are in ministry right now, and you could say something to like the 30 year olds in ministry right now, kind of stepping into that first church plant role or leadership role, you could say, you know, I wonder if we could just say a couple things because did you, you're so wise. There's such a wisdom that the Lord's gifted you and uniquely graced you with, but like, what would you, when it comes to this good baggage that you think like, Hey, it's 20 year olds be thinking about this, be aware of this. What would you say to them? You know, one of the things that has been a shift in language in our society generally is this idea that no emotion is negative. Mm. Our emotions are trying to tell us something. And so we need to listen to hear what it's trying to tell us. And I think a similar thing is true with our pain. Mm. And when it's someone in their 20s, someone in their 30s, I think there, there's this instinct to just push the pain down, whether that's the pain of like, my ministry's not growing as fast as I want it to, and I'm discouraged, or it's the pain of like, somebody gave me some really negative feedback, and it's, it's painful. Um, instead of pushing that pain down or ignoring it, my encouragement is to listen to it. And to not just listen to it, but ask what what deeper down in me is so hurt by this? Why is it so painful that my ministry is not growing as fast as I want it to? Because there's something in your identity. There's something in what you find your value in, something that you find that your significance or your security comes from that's being questioned or challenged. And that is going to, if that's not dealt with, that turns into an idol that now you pursue and your ministry becomes a servant of. 
And the sooner that we can defeat or deal with, or at least identify that idol, the better we're going to be able to work against its dominion over our lives as we go further into ministry. And so just starting to do the work of paying attention to your pain and asking, why is it there? Where's it coming from? Yeah, I think that's so good. So let's say like, for instance, like you, you recognize this codependency piece in you. It's, it's, it's not like um, you could just go in and have it just like operated fully out of you. You know, there's still probably moments where you're like, you're getting attuned to, oh, you know, I pre-COVID probably would have X, Y, and Z this play. Now I'm, I have eyes to see. Talk a little bit about that because I think that there's some of these 20, 30-year-old leaders are going to see, oh, I, I am trying to find this or I do connect with this. What do, how do I live this out in real time when I'm starting to see like, oh, this, this idol popping up or this codependent behavior popping up? How do you catch yourself and choose to leverage for good? One of the things, and I, and I think this is always so important to say, is I think when we think of codependency, for example, we think of people-pleasing, we think of approval-seeking, we think of peacemaking, just doing what is ever is necessary to make people happy with you. And those are really symptoms of a deeper issue. Really, at the core of codependency is what um, a psychologist named T. and Dayton defines as a trauma-related loss of self. Meaning at some point in our life, we went through something where we had to be someone other than ourselves in order to survive. And in being that, we lost a clear sense of who we were. And so every relationship we go into now, we don't know who we are apart from who we are to other people. So we're asking, who do you want me to be and how do I meet that expectation? Right. And so my identity, my sense of value, all of that is tied up in me being who you want me to be. And that's why it's so devastating, but it's also why it's so hard for us to just set it aside is because you can't replace the pursuit of an identity with nothing. And so what I have done and, and what I encourage folks to do with, with whether it's, it's codependency or uh, something else is the first step is just to identify when you're doing it. Because the fact of the matter is you're not just going to realize, oh, I do this, now I'm going to get rid of it. It's, man, in this moment, I'm looking for you to affirm my identity. I'm looking for you to, to encourage my encourage me. And so I'll do whatever I need to do to, to get that from you. And so the first step is identifying when we're doing these things. The second step is being able to um, catch ourselves in the midst of doing it. Because the reality is you're going to catch yourself doing it and you're going to be so frustrated with yourself. Like, here I am doing it again. And to be able to say, don't get discouraged, but recognize this is progress. You're identifying in the moment that you're doing it. And then to begin to kind of think through, okay, what am I going to do different next time? And then the next time, you know, or a few times down the road, you feel that impulse to be like, okay, what's going to make them happy is for me to say yes to this. But really what this is going to cost me is time with my kids. What's really important here? okay, my identity as a father is more important than my identity as a pastor. And so I'm going to pursue that identity above whatever identity I'm trying to fulfill for them. And so slowly it takes steps. It's not going to happen overnight, but but just beginning to identify when you're doing those things is the first step. 
Yeah, no, I think it's so good. I think one of the things I realized for me too um, was I knew other people's desires better than I could actually name my own, you know? And I, I almost was like, oh, my job is to help your desires come true. But when you have no sense of like, what's God's desire for me in this moment? Mm-hmm. It just had like, what's the desire here? I could like lose self-agency. I could lose that self um, identity as a father or as a husband or as a friend, you know? And I think it's really, really good just to like, again, not to have shade or shame, but just to be like, catch yourself in it and be aware. And it's really, really good. What about to like the 40, the 50, the 60 year old, you know, pastor, you know, they're, they're senior leaders, you know, they're, um, you know, they, their excuses, they're too busy. Or they haven't, they haven't started. Um, and they're almost, it's an excuse, but it's also the sense of like, man, I, if I open this box up, it's, I, I have done, I've done everything in my power to, to, to manage that box never being open, that suitcase of baggage never getting open. What would you say? What would you say to them? I would say, and this is not to be cynical. But I would say if you are in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, and you had especially an outright dysfunctional childhood of some sort, and you've been stuffing this stuff down, chances are it's already impacted relationships. Wow. And that is not to say like, you should feel bad. You should shame yourself for it. But it's to say it's probably already had some repercussions. And unfortunately, we find ways to even spiritualize why we weren't responsible for that. Yeah. Um, at the very least, though, we find reasons why we weren't responsible for that or why they did something that caused this. So that's my first thing is to say it's probably already created some pain in your own relationships. The second thing I would say, though, is to say, if it hasn't, or if you're not aware of it, it's not to be doom and gloom, but it's to say, chances are it will at some point, but at the very least, I believe you will find greater joy and satisfaction in your relationships if you begin to do this work now than if you choose not to. Yeah. I think there's something that happens later in life. This is observation, obviously not from experience, but there reaches a point where we just resign ourselves to say, well, this is who I've always been. And in that, what we are essentially saying is, in a way, I'm driving a bulldozer and reality is I can't stop it at this point. So I'm just going to keep bulldozing stuff. And that it becomes sort of a reason to not take responsibility for the stuff you're bulldozing over. And so my encouragement is to say, it's never too late to begin to address some of these things. And in fact, it's going to directly impact the satisfaction of your relationships for the rest of your life. Yeah. That's so good, man. I think when that bulldozer is going, it's almost like, well, it's your responsibility to get out of the way. You know what that's I mean? Right. I, you yeah. knew who I was, you knew that's what right. you were doing, you know? And it's yeah. just like, we put all the onus on somebody else and we're like a victim of our story, even that's though right. we're in power, which is wild. I, I want to go back to this subtitle because the first time I read your subtitle, like I was like, 
oh, it's grammatically incorrect because it should be how your difficult childhood prepared you for unhealthy relationships. And you were like, how your difficult childhood prepares you for healthy relationships. Just talk about that because, you know, it's oftentimes we've used the un the difficult childhood as an excuse for others. Just like, again, this is the way I, the reason I am the way I am, you know, but how did you turn that? Why talk about that? Yeah. So there's a couple of pieces to it. One, a key word in there is prepared you for healthy relationships. It it doesn't mean it gave you healthy relationships that you just automatically have them. It's more the idea of there's a a kind of like the, the image of a bag, your baggage, right? And there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that you've got to work, you've got to sift through and find out what's still helpful and what is not. Yeah. The idea of baggage, kind of the best definition I've come up with is when we talk about baggage, what we're talking about are coping mechanisms that we developed in a unhealthy relationship that we then carry kind of like baggage into another relationship that does not need them, does not need those coping mechanisms. And so what happens is kind of like using the wrong tool on something, you end up breaking whatever you're using it on. The same thing happens in our relationships. And so what I'm saying with this is backing up to say, okay, let's look at what's in this bag. What are the tools in here? And recognize, okay, at some point, this was a tool that I used for self-protection, to to survive. And so, yes, I can use it in ways that hurt my relationships, but it's also a tool. How do I use it to help my relationships? And so one of the, another great example of this is for those of us who grew up in dysfunctional relationships, one of the things that we bring is just this immense loyalty, yeah. that there's safety in loyalty. The problem is we give that loyalty to the wrong people and we're loyal to the wrong people. And we, we give loyalty easy, easily, and then we don't take it away when people don't deserve it anymore. But that loyalty can be a gift to the people in our lives if it's to the right people. And so I want to say, here's a tool that we can use for the good of our relationships, for the health of our relationships, or for the unhealth. And the book is about how do we use it for the health of our relationships. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful. It's like when you read read it through and you, you start to see these examples like loyalty and you sort of see it and um, the empathy, you know, you, you, you see like, oh, this is... This is how I was trained, um, groomed, shaped, formed, um, basically just told to be a certain way. And, and then when you begin to recognize like, man, if I don't, if I don't see that and almost look at that tool yeah. and turn it around and I'm just going to apply that to my wife or my congregation or my child. And, um, and it's just going to, yeah, further damage, but it's also going to create more like, why isn't this working? Like, yeah. I don't want to be that I want to be, you know, and so just the way that you articulated that out, I thought was in the book, just really redemptive and really hopeful. Um, and also it was, it's work. It's like work to do, you know, I'm well, curious. I want to oh, jump yeah. in real quick because something yeah. you said there, I think is huge, which is it's not a choice whether we use these tools tools or not. The fact of the matter is you're going to use them because it's what's put in you. The question is, are you going to use them for the health or the unhealth of your relationships? And so when we say, you know, I'm not going to go into all of that stuff, what we're saying is I'm going to choose to use them and I'm just not going to be aware of how I'm using them. Right. Right. Yes. And we're like, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance right. is bliss, except for everybody else that we're yeah, exactly. in our life, you know? So, um, okay. I, I love asking this question. Um, you know, you've, you've put good baggage out into the wild 
you, you know, it's, it's doing really well. There's, you know, it's, it's people I know who have read it. It's been super blessed by, and it's, it's kind of out there now. And, you know, like the, the process of writing, you submit a manuscript, usually 18 months before goes through edits, <laughs> da, 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 cover, all that stuff. So now you're like two years removed since you kind of really like submitted this for the first time. And two years is a lot of life, a lot of conversations that's chopped. If you could add one chapter based on some of the conversations or some of like the, the stories that you've heard based on what you've the goodness of this book um, that you would say, oh man, this, this story, I wish I could have added, or this piece, I feel like, man, I've just, I know even deeper um, today than I did when I first wrote it. Is there anything around that, that just, that comes to mind? I, I think two things come to mind. The big one is, I think I'd write a chapter at the end that says, and this is why this book is for the rest of us too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Because there's this sense where you read like difficult childhood and, and you like this, you know, you say that's not me, you know, yeah. but the reality is like, it's for anybody who has experienced broken relationships. Yes. Which is all of us. All of us. Um, and that's because none of us are perfect and all of us develop ways of coping with pain that we carry into other relationships. So that's one thing is, yeah, I would say, and here's why it's for the rest of us. Um, the other thing would be, uh, is probably touching more on um, why you can't just ignore this. You know, we've talked a lot about that. That's a consistent conversation is, is why it doesn't work to just ignore it. And I think, we, you know, different points in the book that comes up or we touch on that. But yeah, just kind of touching on that too would be something I'd add. Well, you can see your, um, your pastoral voice, but also this um, inspiration slash challenge ability to just like, I'm going to pastor you, but I'm also going to challenge you to, and you feel it throughout the book. Um, so it's, it's a, it's, it's a necessary read, friends, especially if you're in ministry. Um, I, actually, and I think this is an incredible book to think about, maybe even just a, a sermon series. You know, I, I, I think it could be an amazing, like, post-Easter series, like, just leading right out in that kind of, like, sanctification process. Like, there is just something there. If you're thinking about your calendar, could even be a great just kickoff to the the new year series. Yeah. If some of you, you know, I, I know this is mid December when you're, you're listening to this. If you haven't had a sermon series, get this book. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something that can, can be, but I, where can people find you um, online? Give us a little background. Yeah. So um, IkeMiller.com is the easiest place. There's lots there. Um, and then on Instagram X, I guess now Ike yeah. F. Miller. Uh, are easy places. Obviously, sermons are on our website as well, brightcitychurch.com. So there's, those are some of the good places. But I will say to that point of a sermon series, you know, I don't even think, I mean, I, I'm happy to, to if, if folks want to reach out to me to talk through what it looks like to implement a series like this. But the power of it is everybody has some kind of baggage they're carrying. And so yeah. if you're looking for a conversation that connects with everybody, they may not come out and tell you like, here's my baggage or I've got baggage, but there's like, man, I've got some stuff. And, yeah. and so it definitely connects with people. Dude, I love that. I love that. Well, man, thanks so much. And uh, one, one other random question too, before we, we jet is, you, you know, you and Sharon, uh, your, your wife, like you, you two are like both profoundly gifted communicators, um, both have your PhD. You're both like brilliant. You're both co-leading. 
um, both writers, you know, how, how does that, how does that work from a teaching standpoint? You know, like, are you, are you like, Hey, we should do this series. And she's like, no, I want to do the series on Galatians. You're like, I want, I, I gotta just talk, just give us a little insight on that. Cause you're both so stinking gifted. And during COVID, I actually watched a bunch of your guys' talks. Um, a few of them were like outdoors, uh, back in the COVID in a backyard. And I remember one time, like, just like a, a it might've been a donkey or a lamb was just like walking in the backstage, just like listening to you. Teach. Oh, yeah. I was like, this is amazing. But it yeah. was like, how, do you, how did you guys from a sermon prep do that? You know, so there's a couple pieces to it. One is, um, I, you know, our journey to our structure and how we work together has been a journey. journey. Like it's, it's at its ups and downs, yeah. it's back and forth, it's challenges. Um, one of the things that we did though, is we did take a time and say like, okay, Sharon, what are you passionate about? What am I passionate about? And let's work to align our, our structure with kind of where we're passionate. And I love teaching. I love forming people. I love ideas and thinking through ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, like Sharon is incredibly passionate about that um, in a way that comes out more, I think, when it comes to us having these kinds of conversations. Um, and so that piece being part of it. And then the other piece being the way that we're set up is essentially I'm full-time and Sharon's actually considered part-time. Yeah. Uh, and so I just, there's a number of other things that I manage um, and so it just made sense to say, okay, from a preaching standpoint, you will have ownership over our calendar, but at the same time we get together and we'll talk through and there'll be seasons where I'm like, I really think we need to go after this or, um, it, you know, we'll, she'll come in and she'll say, you know, I think we need to do something, an old Testament book. And I'll be like, you know what? I think the same, I really want us to do first Samuel, you know, let's do first Samuel, you know, that kind of thing. And so there's some collaboration, but we did have to say like, okay, this is your area. This is my area. And, and that's kind of how we broke that down. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, friends, you should, you should listen to both of them. They're both uniquely just uh, gifted, um, but deep and brilliant. And you can just see that the way they can make the thoughtful uh, concepts of the kingdom of the text, just wildly accessible to Durham and beyond. And they're just amazing, amazing pastors and preachers. So I, thanks for joining us on the Crafting Character Podcast and everyone else. Thanks for tuning in. Um, pick up the book, Good Baggage. It, I'm telling you, it's it's going to get you thinking. It's going to get you feeling. It's going to get you journaling. It's going to get you processing with your friends, uh, even your staff. Um, but I promise you, it's going to lead you to become a healthier you. And when that happens, it's going to be a healthier church and a healthier congregation um, where people are going to experience Christ even more beautifully and more powerfully. So thanks again for tuning in to the Crafting Character Podcast. Thanks for preaching today, Food for the Hungry, and uh, we will be back next time. Grace and peace. Peace.